Uh, it's nice to be in this familiar place, uh, leaning against this familiar lectern, uh, raising familiar questions. Uh, it's particularly nice to be here <clears throat> uh, because of Lois Ann Peckham. Um, as many of you know, I had the opportunity to uh, journey with her into the depths of her own suffering uh, where she discovered meaning. And it is somehow uh, poetically appropriate that I get to be the first lecture in the Lois Ann Peckham Lectures. I'm not of want to try to beatify somebody who has died and I got to uh, guide her into the next realm and officiated her funeral. Uh, she was an extraordinary woman in every way, uh, but extraordinarily human. And it was her humanity, I think, that ultimately uh, led her uh, to die well. So I'm very flattered to be a lecturer in the Lois Ann Peckham uh, lectureship. I chose the title The Abundant Life because this was something of what Lois Ann sought and experienced and expressed, but also because The Abundant Life is what it is. I think each of us has a deep, uh, sometimes unconscious, now most of the time semi-conscious longing for The Abundant Life. Uh, who among us doesn't know something of emptiness and loneliness, estrangement, alienation? And who among us doesn't have the deep longing to somehow mend those broken places? I'm particularly interested today because three great rivers seem to be flowing. One is a river of materialism, another of cybernetic technology and the other is spirituality. I have never in my life as a professional seen so much materialism, so much rapid transformation of communication systems, and so much questing and questioning of spirituality. So these Three rivers are flowing concurrently. I'm very curious about where they might lead and from whence they've come. First, the river of materialism. All isms are negative. Why is it that we have, in the greatest time in the history of human beings, more than we've ever had before, and there's so little satisfaction. We no longer forage for food. Our thirsts and hungers are quenched and satiated. We have warm beds. We have a transportation and communication unparalleled, never dreamed of. 
and yet there is the most profound emptiness that humankind has ever known. One of the things that technology has done to us is by its own necessity separate us from nature. With the well-known advent of the patriarchy or the idea of science, technology, the scripture implies that the Creator gave human beings dominion over the earth. And the dark side of dominion is domination. And so we have split ourselves from nature. We are no longer uh, people who are connected at some deep and spiritual level with nature. She is our mother. She is that that gives us a sense of ultimate connectedness and nurture, and yet we're so split from her. Mother is mater, from which we get the word matter, amplified into material, and we've confused and tried to substitute matter and material for that fundamental longing for our mother. Most of you are familiar now with Jung's work on the collective unconscious and archetypes. One of the primary archetypes is mother, the great mother. We see her in all myths, we see her in fairy tales and nursery rhymes. We have a, such a longing for mother, so much so that we try to make mothers out of everything. We try to make corporations our mother. Ma Bell. <laughs> mother Church. We refer to the university as Alma Mater, our mother. Each of us knows that none of those institutions is able to nurture, provide that fundamental sense of security that each of us so desperately longs for. And so we have substituted matter or material for uh, the fundamental connection with mother, nature. Isn't it interesting when somebody f finds themselves materially successful with an abundance of money, working for a corporation, living in an urban center, separated from nature, that the first thing they do is buy a house in the country. This river of materialism is to drown us. It'll drown us before it quenches our thirst. A friend of mine says that it's so hard to be spiritual when you have so much material. 
And so this river of materialism that's flowing more rapidly than ever before, there's just not enough to satisfy our hunger for it. We've established what enough is. It's more. You could look at a sort of anthropology to understand something about the content contemporary nature of human beings. And I'm struck driving around Houston with the number of storage places that have popped up on every corner. And why so? It's because we have entirely too much stuff. Many of you have heard George Carlin's routine where he talks about our stuff, where we have these large houses full of stuff and we get so much stuff that we have to get larger houses in which to put our stuff and buy big trucks in which we can haul our stuff and we have so much stuff we have to store it and nobody is stuffed. I'm concerned about materialism and the confusion that we have between abundance and opulence. There is such a deep hunger, thirst, longing, desire, urge, need for something that is mysterious, mystical, invisible, non-material. And where are the institutions and who are the people that are providing models for how to satiate true hunger. This is a great hall. I'm pleased to have been a small part of its building. But even within institutional religion today, we see that big, bigger seems to be better. We're heirs of a Protestant ethic that came through the Calvinist roots that immigrated in the earliest bloodstream of America. And like malaria, it's there uh, forever. Dr. Calvin was asked the question, why is it that some human beings accept Christ and some don't? And he says, it appears as though they are elected or predestined, he said. The next question came, the answer to which has set up for us much of the difficulty we suffer under in this culture. He went to the scripture to answer the question, how do we know who's elected? And he found that wonderful Johannine verse where he says, by their fruits ye shall know them. Fruits, as you know, are produce. Production, therefore, came the means by which uh, that we produced produce. And so the more we had was a witness to the reality that we had been chosen. And so, 
contrary to the kernel of gospel truth, there is this American religion that says the more we have, the more blessed we are. And so why is it then that the more we have, the emptier we become? There's a second river flowing of cybernetics or technology. It too is startling and it too I think needs to be addressed in terms of how it affects the abundant life. One of the things that we discover in uh, psychological health and maturation and developmental psychology is that maturity depends on two things. One, the ability to de delay gratification. And the second is the ability to control impulse. The ability to de delay gratification and the ability to control impulse. In spite of the benefits and gifts that have come from cybernetics, the computer age, technology, rapid communication, technology has provided, I think, some fundamental issues that must be addressed. It magnifies, it amplifies, and it accelerates. One of the things that we've discovered that is a screen for spirituality, that's a screen for a deep sense of connectedness with that which we refer to as the creator, one of the screens for spirituality has become excitement. And one of the ways we distract from our loneliness and emptiness, our fundamental sense of ennui or angst is excitement. I'm told that the most popular shrine in the world where more people go every year than any other site, sacred or secular, in the world is Atlantic City, New Jersey. On that highly populated corridor, human beings go to be stimulated. Excitement, therefore, becomes the screen for spirituality. And this concerns me about technology and cybernetics. Nobody wants to delay gratification. And nobody wants to control impulse. I'm told that one of the programs that helps get information quicker is entitled Excite. Rapidity, amplification, magnification, acceleration, all I think work against the abundant life. Efficiency, is the god of capitalism, and it's the enemy of love. Beauty is slow. It takes a long time for beauty to develop. 
eons, centuries. How long for a mountain or a great tree? Beauty is slow. Anything that is instantaneous gratifies temporarily. Anything of beauty takes a long time. Cybernetics and technology promise that we can have more quicker. We can be more stimulated, more excited. We're overwhelmed with information and still hungering for inspiration. We also live under a false assumption that technology is going to save us. Science has become a religion and the idea that we can discover the meaning of life or the source of life or the secret of life is nothing but age-old human hubris. And the more we delude ourselves into believing that through technology and cybernetics that we can find the meaning of life or the secret of life as one of the great inflated lies that humans have fostered on one another and our culture. Like the thief who breaks into a house to steal a letter and leaves not having found the letter because the letter was open on the desk. We realize that the secret to life is that there is no secret. That life is experience and the reflection upon it. Life is not a mystery to be solved, but it is an invitation to an experience. The abundant life presumes then that we experience it all, the totality, as well as seeking the essence. The abundant life is what we desire. And yet we've seduced ourselves into believing that the material life or the opulent life or the instantaneous gratification of life is life itself. Efficiency is the god of capitalism and most of the things that bring us the most meaning are not terribly efficient. It takes a long time to develop a relationship. Love is not efficient. Love is laborious. Love is difficult. There is no instant gratification. There is no acting upon impulse. What I do for a vocation is not terribly efficient. Sitting with another human being hour after hour and week after week and year after year, trying to discover that unique special person that we were created and called to be and are seeking to become. Not terribly efficient work. It takes a long time. 
for beauty is slow. Joseph Campbell was very excited about Lucas's Star Wars trilogy. He was particularly excited about the first of the Star Wars movies. Being a mythologist, he of course saw the mythological formula and this popular movie and knew that its popularity was not because of excitement and entertainment, but because of substance. And he was very moved by the climactic scene in that movie where Luke Skywalker goes in his jet plane to blow up the dark star. And he has his fine computer, and the computer takes him into the force field of the dark star, and he's running down to drop the bomb that will destroy the dark star. And the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, the voice of the self, the voice of God says, Luke, turn off the computer. And Campbell felt in that moment it came into collective consciousness that technology was not going to save us. That we still must rely on the force. The force that resonates in each of us, a force that resonates between us, the force that resonates among us. And that force is not from technology or cybernetics, but from the mystery of the creator, the creator's self. A third river that's flowing, in addition to materialism and technology, is that I've never seen so much conversation about spirituality. The river of materialism is a mile wide and an inch deep. The river of cybernetics is a bit deeper and not quite so wide. But the river of spirituality is an inch wide and a mile deep. There's so much superficial spirituality talked about as if once again, it's something to entertain us or excite us. And true spirituality is not an avocation. True spirituality is not something that one approaches as they would a study of wine or photography. But spirituality is a way of being in the world. True, deep, or authentic spirituality is not necessarily about any one particular community or one world view or one set of dogma or doctrine or one set of symbols or sacred stories, but spirituality is about a way of approaching life. It's about a consciousness about one's being in the world. And so spirituality is not something that one does as a study as if one could take a course on it. But true spirituality is the deep human longing
to experience the transcendent in the imminent and then to reflect upon it with at least one other person. Spirituality is a deep human longing to experience the transcendent in the imminent and to share it with another. The Buddhists have the concept of living mindfully, which is very much closer to the sense of true spirituality. And that is the realization that the transcendent permeates every aspect of life. That one doesn't have to go to the ashram or the monastery or the cathedral in order to experience the transcendent, but true spirituality is found in chopping wood and hauling water. That in our daily routine, in our daily life, that the spirit we seek is as near as hands and feet. It's difficult for us to see the spirit because when there's so much material, it's very difficult to be spiritual. And we're distracted by trying to fill our emptiness with matter. Our longing and our emptiness is so profound and so deep that if we took every item in Sam's wholesale market, every item in Williams Sonoma and Crate and Barrel, and threw it in a stick at a time, it would not fill our emptiness. We could get on Montrose Boulevard and drive out Westheimer to Highway 6 and stop at every opening in every strip center and sup of every matter that is sold and marketed and it would not begin to satiate the hunger that we have. We are like the Fisher King. We're sitting in our castle we have the chalice before us and we cannot drink from it. We're like the thief looking for the letter and it's open in front of us. That we among all human beings are the most fortunate because we have been invited into the human experience and we spend our life in fear of it, denying it, distracting from it, and missing it. There's such fundamental anxiety and fear in us that we spend our lives somehow feeding the fear and we miss the spirit who lives as near as hands and feet. Abundance is about contentment, about peace about serenity. Abundance is about simplicity. Contentment means finding meaning in what you have. Serenity is the ability to live life meaningfully in the, in the face of chaos and vicissitude. 
Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of love. And simplicity is about the radical appreciation and recognition of the gracefulness of being invited into the human experience. There are several things that I list as the hallmarks of a mature spirituality. The first would be the recognition of the autonomy of God. That God is meaning and God is mystery. God is not under the control of the wants of our egos. That God comes to us in any way that God chooses and generally not the way we expect. There's incredible autonomy to God and God is not under the control of our wants or needs the business of whatever we mean by God, it's a political term. Put your own definition uh, within this symbolic word that points to the greatest meaning and mystery. The word God carries so much baggage for us. And there are many God images, and each of us perhaps holds our own variety of God images. But whatever we mean by God, God is the it we seek when we seek to be with it. God is the it we seek when we seek to get it. It is mystery. It is meaning. And there's a great autonomy in God. And that is God comes to us in the most unexpected ways and places the most surprising times. If God wants to reveal God's self through a plastic dashboard Jesus, God can do so. I stood at this lectern in that pulpit for over a decade preaching such profound truth and meaning. that there were sometimes as many as 400 people would come to hear me. When I left the cathedral one Sunday morning, I was at Randall's at 11 o'clock, and there were seven or 800 there. <laughs> so much for my ego. <clears throat> and through those years, there was a woman who sat and listened to my profundity about the gospel of transformation about the meaning of life and its availability. And she would go home every Sunday after hearing me and drink herself into a stupor. There was not one thing about my teaching or my preaching or the efficacy of Anglican piety and dignity that affected her addictive problem one iota. to prove the absolute irony and autonomy of God and to reveal the darkness of my own shadow. One Sunday afternoon, as she poured herself a large drink and sat down and began to channel surf, 
she came across Jimmy Swaggart. And Jimmy Swaggart, who I suspect would be my antithesis. with a, a lion-like head with 16 ounces of hairspray. He leaned across a plastic pulpit and said, the grace of God, don't even try to understand it. There was something about that time and that place and that woman and she got up and went to the phone and called somebody that she knew that was in Alcoholics Anonymous and asked her to come to her house. That's the autonomy of God. That in the most surprising times and places, the most surprising ways, God chooses to break into and provide an epiphany for those human beings who suffer. A second aspect of a mature spirituality is the radical nature of grace. As one who did his entire education in the 60s, the word radical in those days had political connotations of people who wanted to blow up buildings. But the word radical simply means deep-rooted. It's the same word that we get for radish. The radical nature of grace means that any mature spirituality has within it this radical sense of grace. I don't care what one's uh, religious orientation is or tradition, the grace permeates all traditions. And grace, simply understood, is undeserved favor that cannot be bought, earned, or sold. It has no material value. And grace comes to us in the most unexpected times and places, and we must realize in the radical sense of grace that there are no God-forsaken places and there are no God-forsaken people. I love the parable of the rabbi Jesus taught where he talks about those who labor all day and then some come in and work one hour and they're all paid the same. It's not good economic theorem, is it? And there was great grumbling in that place, and they complained, you mean you've made them equal to us? That's the radical nature of grace. God loves every human being equally, without condition. Will Campbell, in his book, Brother to a Dragonfly, tells a very dramatic story. Will Campbell was a Mississippi boy who began to preach as a teenager and was ordained a Baptist preacher. And he went off 
to Yale Divinity School and was transformed. He went back home and became a Southern reconciler and saw that the real root of evil in his time and in his place and with his folk was the evil of racism. He writes in his book, Brother to a Dragonfly, about his brother Joseph. When Campbell was a young chaplain at the University of Mississippi, he planned a religious emphasis week and he invited a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People to speak. He lost his job and almost lost his life. His brother Joe called him and said, Will, a couple of things I need to remind you of before you go off and get yourself killed. He said, you claim to follow this man, Jesus. I want you to remember a couple of things that you're only in your 20s. He was 30 before he went to Jerusalem. Second thing is you only go to Jerusalem once. And the third thing is, you ain't Jesus. <laughs> Campbell's dear friend was a publisher of a small paper in the South, and his name was P.D. East. And one time they were driving along, and East considered himself to be a beloved infidel. He said, Campbell, could you just tell me one time in 10 words or less, what is this gospel of Christianity about? Campbell thought for a while, thought it was a good challenge, and said, well, I think what the gospel's about is that we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. <laughs> he said, it's a pretty good definition. You got two words left. <laughs> Campbell's job as a Southern Reconciler was to invite people to come and help register voters in the South, particularly the African-American population. One of the young people that had come and volunteered to be uh, work in the voter registration program was a young Episcopal seminarian from our seminary in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and his name was Jonathan Daniel. Campbell is responsible for the many wide-eyed, innocent, and idealistic young people who went to the South and helped register voters, and Jonathan Daniel was one of them. And one afternoon in Landis County, Alabama, he and a black young man from Chicago were registering voters, and they stopped by a rural grocery store and gas station to get a cool drink of water, and they walked into that service station and grocery store and one of the men was black and they were asked to leave and words were exchanged and the deputy sheriff was called and before it all ended Jonathan Daniel had been shot and killed. It was one of the worst nights in the life of Will Campbell. He had invited those young people down there to work for him and this young man had been murdered. As he sat alone with P.D. East, East bore in on him 
Campbell writes like a tiger. And he sat as close as he could sit and he bent over and he said, how's your definition of Christianity holding up? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, was that preacher boy from the Episcopal Church that's been murdered, was he a bastard? Campbell said, that was difficult, but I guess under my definition that all human beings are, yes, he was. He said, what about that white deputy sheriff that murdered him? Was he a bastard? Campbell said, that one's easier. Yes, he was a bastard. East bore down harder. He said, now, which one does God love the more? The white preacher boy or the white deputy sheriff who murdered him. And Campbell said, you're the biggest bastard of all because you just made a Christian out of me. Spirituality is not an avocation. It's a way of being in the world. And it's a recognition not only that God is autonomous, but grace is radical. That all Human beings are created equally. And no matter how estranged or alienated, we're all loved equally. A third hallmark of mature spirituality is individual integrity. The sense that one's spirituality is as unique to him and her as fingerprints. That you can't take a Procrustean bed. Procrustius was the one who stood outside the gates of Athens and everybody who came by he would put in a bed and if they didn't fit exactly he would stretch them or cut their feet off. There is no template that we can put on or there's no litmus paper to put in somebody's mouth to test their faith or spirituality. It will be to them as unique as their own personality. A mature spirituality allows others to have their own unique expression of their spirituality. And my experience is that I'm willing to allow others to have their own unique style and way of expressing their spirituality, but I expect to have the same afforded to me. Our faith is not private, but it is personal. I was asked one time when I was a young priest sitting on a panel with one who came from a much more conservative tradition than I, if I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I said, well, I guess I do. He said, well, can you tell me anything about that? I said, no, it's personal. <laughs> Individual integrity is something that I think is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. It seems the more mature one becomes spiritually, the more inclusive and accepting he or she becomes of others and their differences. 
I used to say in this very place that the sophistication of a community is their ability to integrate those who are different. Any spirituality that has any maturity comes out of the matrix of community. I'm fond of saying about the paradox of individuation or evolution as a human being is that I alone must become myself and yet I cannot become myself alone. Any mature spirituality is born out of the matrix of community. Community may be one other person where two or three are gathered together, but it's necessary that we're always working out our spirituality in relationship with and to others. There's no such thing as an individual in the eyes of God. I suspect that a unit of measurement for God is two rather than one, that each of us is incomplete, and so a unit of measurement of the human being is two rather than one. So the very idea of a hermitage is that a hermit is always connected to a community. And so as we think about mature spirituality and abundance, the translation of the transcendent into the imminent, we will not experience that apart from others. There is, I think, finally, in a mature spirituality and the abundant life, a sense of transcendent unity, that all things are connected. James Glick in his book Chaos reminds us of the butterfly principle, meaning that if a butterfly beats its wings in Beijing, it will become a thunderstorm in New York. That all things are connected. We just don't have the kind of consciousness to see all of the connections. There's no such thing as chaos. It's just our inability to comprehend the intricacies of the connections. Jung said that a human community and human beings are like a rhizome. The rhizome is that connection of root systems that goes beneath the crust of the earth where all organisms are connected beneath the crust of the earth, and so it is with us. That a mature spirituality presumes that we're all connected, that we're all brothers and sisters, and that we are all seeking the same fundamental things, that your deepest longings are mine. Your urges are mine. Your conflicts are mine. Your insecurities are mine. Our condition is ours. I guess uh, you could say, as I've said before, that I'm a Marxist. Groucho, not Carl. <laughs> Groucho Marx was famous or infamous for saying that he wouldn't belong to any club that would have him as a member. <laughs> I feel that way about any concept of God. I could not worship any God that I could comprehend. And so with our God images, it's important, maybe it's necessary, and I suspect it's involuntary that we come up with images of God. You and I have inherited an image that we share of the patriarchal God in a three-storied universe who sits in heaven on a throne with a white beard, 
a kind of autocratic way, punishes and rewards on the basis of behavior. That God image just doesn't work anymore for most of us. So rather than thinking about God as a concept, I think we must have a mature spirituality or an abundant life begin to think of God as an experience, not a concept. Whatever we mean by the abundant of life, it will not have abundance unless there's some experience of the transcendent. An abundant life or authentic spirituality or mature spirituality is a way of being in the world in which we expect to experience God. And we have a third eye and a third ear with which to see and hear the mystery and seek the meaning. And once again, it's like the thief who breaks into the house and cannot find the letter because it's open on the desk in front of him. And the places that we seek God are afar when God is always as near as hands and feet. We experience God, I think, most profoundly in nature. I want to read a piece from Teilhard de Chardin in his book, The Divine Milieu, where he talks about, as a paleontologist and Jesuit priest, how he experiences God in nature. Throughout my life, by means of my life, the world has little by little caught fire in my sight until a flame all around me. It has become almost completely luminous from within. Such has been my experience in contact with Mother Earth, the diaphany of the divine at the heart of the universe on fire, Christ, his heart, a fire, capable of penetrating everywhere and gradually spreading anywhere. The kingdom of God is within us. When Christ appears in the clouds, he will simply be manifesting a metamorphosis that has been slowly accomplished under his influence in the heart of humankind. In order to foster its progress more intelligently, more intelligently, let us observe the birth and growth of the divine milieu, first in ourselves and then in the world that begins with us, a breeze passes in the night. When did it spring up? Whence does it come? Whether is it going? No one knows. No one can compel the spirit, the gaze, or the light of God to, to descend upon him. It began with a particular and unique resonance which swelled each harmony with a diffused radiance which haloed each beauty and each of us. All of the elements of psychological life were in turn affected. Sensations, feelings, thoughts, I began to feel what was ineffably common to all things. The unity communicated itself to me by giving me the gift of grasping it. I had, in fact, acquired a new sense, the sense of a new quality, of a new dimension, deeper still. Transformation had taken place for me in the very perception of being, a being on earth. Nature is one of the places we experience God. I like 
human beings and our nature, we, we can look at nature and it mirrors human nature. How a human being can sit in one's own house and look outside at her tree and see in a cycle of seasons that that tree is mirroring our own life experience. That life, death, and new life as the rhyme and rhythm of the universe, the dance of all creation is exemplified in the simplicity of sitting for a cycle of seasons and watching a tree where the tree browns and brittles and falls and then again on that same branch there begins a knuckle of a bud that struggles as Eliot said April's the cruelest month of the year as it struggles to be born and to blossom and bloom from the loss of the brown and brittle leaf to the return of the green shoot and bloom and blossom. In our ability to observe a tree, we can see the loss and hope of all life. That's the abundant life, is the ability to see one's nature in nature, to experience God as close as a tree in one's own yard. To see a tree as a metaphor and a living experience of our own life, of the reality of death and loss and the hope of transformation and new life. We don't have to read profound scholars or travel to sacred sites that we can sit in our own house and observe our own trees and see the most simple, deep, profound messages of truth and mystery and meaning. Contentment means finding meaning in what you have. Serenity is the ability to stay content in the face of chaos. And peace is not the absence of conflict but the presence of love. We can see in nature the hand of the Creator. But further in experiencing God, we can experience God in our own creativity, in our own creative abilities, in our own creative urges. We can see God in creativity and in creation. To sit and see that tree in a cycle of seasons, and then to use the tree as a metaphor for the beginning of consciousness and the tree in Eden and the transformation of consciousness and the tree at Calvary and to see the tree as a metaphor for the beginning and the end and the new beginning. To sit in a house made from trees on a chair that is hewn from the trunk of a tree and be warmed by a fire of burning trees and reading a book that is made from trees and the book is a reflection on the nature of trees. I like human beings and their ability to be creative. We experience God in creativity. The creator put a spark 
of creativity in each creature and in so offering our creative urge, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be a profound piece of art. It doesn't have to be a great symphony. It can be as simple as whistling in the shower or dancing with a broom in your kitchen alone to the sounds of Patsy Cline. Creativity is the expression of something of the creator that's in each creature and offering it back. The abundant life is the simple life. It's the life of experiencing God in nature. The abundant life is the simple life. It's experiencing God in our own creativity. The abundant life is living the life that we've been given and finding meaning in it and not waiting until then or remembering when, but living in the abundant, eternal now. A third way that we experience God is in ritual process, of course, in attending a divine worship through prayer and meditation. The ritual process is important. One of the things spirituality does is celebrate the abundance of life by celebrating the life cycle, birth, maturity, marriage, death. It celebrates the life cycle. But even further, we all each have our own ritual processes in which we can discover God or spirit or abundance. Each of us has a sanctuary in our house called a bathroom where we go through our own daily rituals of elimination of waste and cleansing, the baptismal ritual of daily washing, of adornment. That in our very life, our quotidian ways, we can discover the spirit and the abundance. It's not just waking up and smelling the coffee. It's the ability to see that within my daily process, that with every heart beat and breath drawn, that something dramatic and creative and mysterious and meaningful is going on. It's not that I seek meaning in mystery. It's that I am meaning in mystery. And that knowing myself, and knowing my place in the world, and knowing my friends and family and my vocation, that I am knowing something of the abundant life. For who among us could think about experiencing God apart from others? God is love, and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. Experiencing God in love is not just that superficial cardboard heart hallmark cards kind of love. The cupid love, the stupid love, but the kind of love of the will, where one wills to love another with stability and longevity and a commitment to going to the deepest level that human beings can go in intimacy. Intimacy described as self-disclosure in the presence of one you value, 
whereby you share feelings, fantasies, fears, and failures. And that intimacy and that transaction and that communication is the transforming experience of all the things we've talked about. Most particularly grace. Sardian said, if we could ever re-harness and capture the power and energy of human love, we will once again have discovered fire. Another way that we don't often think about the experience of God and the abundant life is in suffering. As you know, I love etymology, and many of you have been reminded by me that the word forer means to carry, suff means from below, so sufferer means to carry from below or beneath. To suffer something in a spiritual sense means to carry it. We're not talking about the kind of suffering that goes on with metastatic cancer at MD Anderson Hospital. That suffering ought to be palliated in a moment. We learn all from physical pain that we're going to learn very quickly. But the kind of suffering I'm talking about in which we experience God is the suffering of the soul, where we have an issue in our life, where we have a conflict in our life, where we have a difficulty in our life that we can't quite spiritually metabolize. And we must hold it. We must carry it until we can find the meaning. Suffering means to carry. And Jesus said of the Sermon on the Mount, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like one of these, you cannot dwell therein. And he took them up into his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. Suffer the little children means to pick them up by their bottoms and carry them. And so it is with spiritual suffering, is it's finding this most difficult problem we have, our life issue, our huge conflict, our inability to carry it, to suffer it, until we can find its meaning. Now, suffering is not something human beings court. It's not something we do very well. It's not something that we have much permission or modeling for unless we look at the great saints of our traditions. And each of them, we see that their soul was formed in the cruciform of the crucible of suffering. And so it is with us. It's not very marketable. It seems to me that it would be more marketable to talk about a fellowship of excitement than a fellowship of suffering. Finally, one of the ways that we experience God that's undervalued is in our body. Blake said that the five senses are the inlets of the soul. So in our tastes and our touch and our smell and our hearing, we experience the abundant life. We taste our food. We smell freshly mown grass. 
we hear uh, the sounds of the bird early in the morning or the sounds of the wind blowing in the leaves and touch what transformation comes from human touch. All the sacraments of the church are around the senses, taste, smell, sound, touch. I worked with a man for a number of years who suffered from profound, for a long time, undiagnosed and untreated depression. With medication and talk therapy, he was able to manage his life. Though his life had meaning, he couldn't get to it. He described it as if there was a haze or gauze between him and the meaning. Anybody who suffered from depression knows that dark cloud or that desperate canopy that comes across one's consciousness. One day he left my office late in the afternoon, it was dark, and there's a trellis going out of our office, and once he got past the trellis onto the parking lot, it was November, and he felt the first cool breeze of fall upon his cheek, and he knew he was going to be well. It was through his body that his body was healed. God is not a concept, but God is an experience. And we experience God in nature and creativity and ritual process in others, in suffering and in our body. The abundant life is a life of simplicity, and the inevitable companion of simplicity is depth. And depth is where the abundance is. That's where the deep down things are. It's where the essence there are the four elements or essences of earth and wind and water and fire. The four elements or the four essences. And what we seek is the fifth, the quintessential. The abundant life is about finding the quintessence, the quintessential, which we're not going to find anywhere but in our own life, in our own little simple life. We have so long looked elsewhere. We have so long blamed others for the absence of meaning in our life. We have so long distracted because of the fear. We have so long postponed or given up and decided to be excited and to distract, to pour more material, to find one more thing. And the thing we seek is who we are. The Sufis talk about the beloved and that we seek the beloved and the beloved is a concept that points beyond itself to mystery and meaning. But whatever we mean by the beloved, we mean something of essence, something of substance, something of depth, something of mystery, something of meaning. 
and the beloved that we seek, we are. The abundant life is available to each human being, no matter what your fate, no matter what your station in life, no matter what your race or creed, no matter your gender, no matter your affluence, the abundant life is available. But in order to get to it, one has to change one's viewpoint and seek it, seek it with all that you have in order that it will find you. It will find you no other place but in that body, in that house, with those people in this life. Amen.